Uh, right, well, good morning, everyone. I'm Stuart Moita, the Acting Dean of the Law School, and uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the conference today. Now, my, uh, I suppose, early experience with uh, um, thinking about the city and the urban um, came after the publication of um, Walter Benjamin's Arcades Project by Harvard University Press in 1999. And uh, in a very sort of romantic uh, gesture to Benjamin, I put the tome of the Arcades Project in my backpack and went off to Paris to uh, find the arcades, um, which took a little, a little bit of looking, um, and wandered around. And I then also had this idea that I was going to... Uh, um, follow a path that Benjamin took down to the, pyramid, to, down to the Pyrenees and um, uh, it was the middle of winter and perhaps uh, fortunately for me uh, the winds blew in and uh, uh, tore down the, uh, the railway power lines and I wasn't able to get down to the Pyrenees but it, uh, it's a story that connects very nicely with um, the scholarship of uh, Professor Mariana Valverde uh, with whom I had, I think, my first encounter at the Law and Society Association conference in Budapest, uh, where I think, and I think my memory serves me correctly here, that Chris Tomlins and you were doing a panel. It was in Berlin. It was in it Berlin. Berlin. That was in Berlin. Okay, so it was in Berlin. So it was not as, not as far back as the Budapest conference, but you gave a paper on Walter Benjamin uh, based on your on the research that you had been doing around the area where uh, Benjamin uh, committed suicide and emphasizing the, um, the importance also of paying attention to the refugees from the Spanish Civil War and you've published a number of uh, pieces in relation uh, to Benjamin. So uh, I think your work has certainly inspired me and so it's terrific to be able to um, welcome you here. So just to say a few more formal words about Professor Valverde. Uh, she's Professor at the Centre for Criminology and Social Legal Studies at the University of Toronto, where she served as Director from 2007 to 2013. She's also a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and holds cross-appointments to the Department of Geography and Planning, as well as the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Professor Valverde's main research interests are currently urban law and governance, historically and in the present, and at the theoretical level, Foucault, sexuality studies, theories of spatial temporality, and actor network theory. In 2016, she received the Law and Society Association's Harry J. Calvin Award in recognition of empirical scholarship that has contributed most effectively to the advancement of research in law and society. And, in fact, I remember a number of exchanges with Mariana where she had emphasized that, you know, the work that we do in critical legal studies really does need to draw also on sustained empirical research uh, um, rather than the, the sort of uh, solely philosophical uh, research that uh, some scholars engage in. She has twice won the Law and Societies Association's Herbert Jacobs Book Prize for a major contribution to socio-legal scholarship, in 2000 for the book Diseases of the Will, Alcohol and the Dilemmas of Freedom, published by Cambridge University Press, and again in 2013 for Everyday Law on the Streets, City Governance in an Age of Diversity, 
published by the University of Chicago Press in 2012. This latter work is a tour de force of theoretically informed empirical legal scholarship that examines how law influences the production of urban life and urban experience. One reviewer has suggested that this work is the best understood as the foundation for a new path at the intersection of urban and political sociology. Her most recent book, Michel Foucault, published by Routledge in 2017, gives an accessible account of Foucault's work and how it can be used for purposes of legal studies and criminological research. Her talk today is entitled Beyond Privatization and Neoliberalism, Analyzing Hybrid Networks of Urban Development. Welcome to both of Okay, thank you, Stuart, for that very nice introduction. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here um, with you all. And I'm hoping that I'll end up learning a lot about urban law and governance in Brazil and other places. I was very pleased to see that the program is so international. Um, anyway, for my own talk, um, which is not particularly well organized. I sort of threw it together thinking that it would be better to do something a little new. Um, uh, but the result is that it's a series of observations, essentially. It's not really a very coherent talk. But um, the one thing that I'm hoping to do, um, so I suppose the one overarching point of the talk is that I hope that I manage to persuade you that the tendency that critical legal scholars and critical geographers have to attribute all sorts of misdeeds and ills and problems to something called the neoliberal city, I'm hoping to persuade you that this is not useful. It might have been useful at a certain point when neoliberalism was newer, but right now I think it actually keeps us from really thinking things through. So I'm going to argue that we need much more concrete ways of understanding what's going on, whether it be financial flows or modes of governance, and that the neoliberal city has become an obstacle to thinking um, and analyzing. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that, um, I mean, it's often the case that critical work, um, I mean, scholarly work is always a bit behind the times, you know, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of the dusk. Um, and critical thinkers are not um, immune to that. We're always somewhat behind the times. And now we have a ton of articles that start off with the neoliberal city or neoliberal this and that. And the world has moved on. Um, uh, uh, perhaps more so outside of the UK than in the UK, but anyway, that's a, a, a discussion for over lunch or something. Um, in a lot of places in the world, there is actually a kind of disavowal of neoliberalism and somewhat of a reaction to it. Um, and for instance, there's many places now in the world where there's a real backlash against outright privatization of transportation and other, other public services. Um, um, 
well, in Australia, I mean, there's not exactly a very successful backlash, but there is at least somewhat of a backlash, and so a lot of public entities, municipalities, states, and so on, are, are trying to organize other ways of doing things that don't go back to the full national network uh, of sort of 50s and 60s fame, but are still not characterized by outright privatization. And one of the things that's really interesting and that nobody talks about in urban studies is the fact that in the U.S., of all places, there never was the privatization wave that we saw in the U.K., Australia, many parts of Latin America, many parts of Europe. Now, I found that quite fascinating, and I spent a lot of time doing research on the history of urban governance in the U.S., um, and U.S. scholars, of course, know this, but they never talk about it because U.S. scholars never, ever compare the U.S. to anywhere else. Um, so then, therefore, they don't know what's specific about their country. And as Canadians, I think we're well-placed to uh, see what's going on, but somewhat from the outside. So what I discovered is that in the U.S., hybrid networks of urban governance have been how cities have been built pretty much always. So even in the golden age of the welfare state, when in Britain you had like, I don't know, the national, you know, you had British Rail and you had the NHS and all that, the US never saw that. And especially at the municipal level, what you saw was a continuation of late 19th century patterns whereby business groups and city councillors and whoever would get together and organize some kind of urban renewal scheme or something like that. And in those days, they were not called public-private partnerships, but that's what they would be called today. So a lot of what um, I think I'd like to think about is to what extent the U.S. history of hybrid networks of urban governance, which mix public powers, public property, private property, and private powers in really interesting and often ad hoc ways, how that is something that is now being adopted other places, but in other places it's as if, oh, this is new, okay, public-private partnerships, new thing. Well, um, you know, it turns out it isn't. Um, now, so there's a lot of strategies that you could say are sort of hybrid in the sense of combining, as I said, not only public law and public powers and private property, but also private powers and public property. Because oftentimes what the city puts in in these deals is actually property as opposed to just legal powers. But in these networks, um, um, they take a large variety of forms and we need a lot more empirical studies before we can make any generalizations about them. Uh, some definitely are money-making opportunities for capital, but many of them have good sort of public um, outcomes as well. I don't think you can generalize. But one th the only thing I think you can generalize about with these hybrid networks of urban governance is the scale, the spatiotemporal scale, both of projects as they're imagined and designed and uh, seen and as they're authorized by their various relevant authorities, uh, whether it be 
you know, city councils or whether it be the corporate boards um, of the for-profit corporations or whether they be things like the governing councils of various universities and hospitals which have become major urban developers. Um, okay, so some examples. Um, now, as I was saying um, earlier, in the US we haven't had a lot of outright privatization um, of public services, in part because a lot of services were never public in the first place. Um, um, but what we have had, one of the things we've seen in recent years, it's, it's the financialization of public assets. Um, it's not that easy to financialize public assets because there's not that many that actually make money and that interest the private sector. And in the US, one of the very few secure revenue streams that local governments have is parking, street parking, maybe parking garages if they have them. Uh, you know, parking is the one source of revenue that cities um, in North America have and that is not contestable in the courts. So you can go to court as a property owner and argue against, you know, some zoning law that deprived you of your power to build, you know, a giant condominium or something. But no one has ever gone to court to argue that the taxpayers have already paid for the streets. So why are we parking on top of that to park our cars there? This would be a good legal argument, perhaps. The streets maybe should be public. We shouldn't have to pay for them. But somehow it's never been an argument. So cities can charge for street parking. And in uh, you know cities in the US where lots of people drive and that are very spread out, horizontal cities is a big source of revenue. And the Chicago parking meter financialization story is worth telling because it's one of the stories that has actually provoked a backlash against not only outright privatization but even financialization or public-private partnerships. So what happened? Quickly, in 2005 some roads that were part of the Chicago system were turned into a public-private partnership, a special purpose vehicle, um, and the big Spanish engineering company Sintra, which has built more toll highways than any other company in the world, was uh, predictably involved, as was the Australian infrastructure hedge fund uh, Macquarie. These two companies recur all over the world, and they, uh, their participation, I think, standardizes these partnerships a lot more than any sort of public law tools. Anyway, that wasn't enough. Uh, so then in 2006, the parking garages that were owned by the city were leased, not to the uh, you know, previous partnership, but to Morgan Stanley Infrastructure Partners. Um, infrastructure has become a big source of revenue so that a lot of private sector firms like Morgan Stanley have um, evolved into uh, or have hived off infrastructure arms. Um, and then in 2007, the partnership was extended to include all street parking, which is 36,000 um, um, you know, parking spaces. Anyway, there was a lot of bad lawyering on the part of the city of Chicago. I'm sure Morgan Stanley had much better lawyers, much better legal help. 
Um, they didn't have a proper value for money assessment, uh, so the city didn't get paid nearly enough. Um, by the beginning of 2008, the city of Chicago saw that it was going to have a big deficit. They could see the crisis coming. Um, anyway, by the end of 2008, they signed a contract with Morgan Stanley that was uh, should be taught in law schools as the worst contract ever. Um, so just to highlight a few things, apart from the fact that the city didn't get nearly enough the value because they didn't get a proper independent assessment. Apart from that, public interest was seriously harmed in a number of ways as well as the city's finances. So, one example. The city had had a policy to not charge for street parking for people with disabled stickers on their cars. Well, this turned out to be a penalty under the contract. So for every bit of revenue that Morgan Stanley didn't get because of the disabled people who got free parking, that was a penalty in the contract. Secondly, every time the city decided to close a street because the neighbors wanted to have you know, togetherness and wanted to have a street festival, another penalty because Morgan Stanley was being deprived of the revenue from these parking um, spots, which were now not available for revenue because, you know, people were using them for other things. Anytime there was construction, of course, some parking spots had to be taken offline, um, and that was another penalty. So the city discovered that they were paying huge penalties to Morgan Stanley every time that they used the parking spots for a public good instead of simply, you know, collecting the revenue. Now, the Chicago parking meter story has become well-known, at least among urban planners. I, I don't know why it hasn't become well-known among planners uh, or lawyers, because it really <laughs> should be a great example. Um, but, and you, you can see in the slide that, you know, people got so upset that they started putting these um, Wall Street pig stickers on the parking meters. Um, um, don't sell us out again. Anyway, um, and I don't know whether it's led to sort of um, some changes, but it is one of the stories that has become fairly well known, at least in among city managers, it has become well known. Uh, and it's made people skeptical of the outright um, sort of deference to... Um, finance capital. Now, um, one of the other things that's been studied in the literature and that I'm studying personally um, in relation to the University of Toronto is the role of institutions that are not city councils, they're, they're not government per se, but they're in the broader public sector, their role as real estate owners and developers. So I'm calling these accidental developers. These would include hospitals, universities, um, charities, trusts. I was walking here this morning and I saw the Nuffield Trust, some you know, big building going up nearby. Um, and in many um, American cities, hospitals and universities have become major downtown redevelopers. But very few people are looking at the role of these entities because in planning schools, 
They look at what cities do, and maybe if you're lucky, at what private developers do. Um, but hardly anybody looks at the broader public sector, which is hugely important in many cases. Um, and there's been some interesting uh, muckraking kind of work showing what happens when institutions, not just Harvard, but um, you know, public universities and public institutions, get um, persuaded that they should be buying derivatives like interest rate swaps. Now, what I want to do here is not explain how this works, but rather say, well, how is it that perfectly respectable public universities, like the University of California or the University of Amsterdam, would end up buying millions uh, in interest rate swaps, which of course proved to be a total disaster after 2008 when interest rates plummeted and so you didn't need to uh, buy interest rate swaps to protect yourself against rising interest, it was the other way around. Um, so how is it that entities in the public sector got talked into this kind of thing? Um, because I don't think it's necessarily that the people who run these entities are neoliberal uh, thinkers themselves. It's not like the people come with these sort of right-wing ideologies. I think it's much more structural. For the University of Amsterdam, for instance, how did this happen? Well, what happened is that the Dutch Ministry of Education, which had previously owned all of the buildings of different Dutch universities and in the Netherlands as in Germany if you're a um, lecturer in a university you're a federal civil servant, right? So universities are not independent corporations the way they are in the UK and in the US. Um, anyway, but the Dutch Ministry of Education has decided to download responsibility for buildings to each university. And then each university rector very cleverly had decided, hmm, and they had responsibilized each of the faculties for their buildings. Now, in the case of certain buildings, like, you know, private condominium buildings, a building is an asset. On university financial books, buildings are considered as assets, they're listed as assets. That is completely false. They're actually liabilities because you can't really sell them. <laughs> uh, there's no real market value and universities, you know, can't very well pack up and move to Mexico or move to Northern England, you know, like if Oxford decided they were going to move to Lancashire because land is cheaper, uh, it wouldn't work too well. So the same thing that looks like an asset to an accountant, i.e. a building, can actually be a liability, especially when they're decaying because of deferred maintenance and all of that. And so the downloading of buildings to particular units, which I think has happened in the UK as well, because each academic unit is now its own financial unit, actually, instead of making them rich and making them able to play financial markets and you know sell their land, because they cannot, at a practical level, sell off their buildings and they could, I suppose, privatize them, but you can't really privatize them too much either because you've got to have a place for your students and your classrooms and everything else. Um, so because financialization is actually really limited in the case of universities as with schools, 
um, then you end up with liabilities. And what do they do with these liabilities? Well, what everybody does, they go into more debt to pay off the debt. And so you end up with university debt. In the US, it doubled in the last 10 years. And the vast majority of that debt is because of new buildings. So why is it that when you have old buildings with deferred maintenance, why is it that universities go on these building sprees with these super fancy buildings? Is this happening in the UK too? Yes, yes. fancy buildings? All for professional faculties, right? Aha, yes. uh -huh. <laughs> how did I guess? Uh, and usually it's because, um, you know, prof like in Canada, for instance, uh, you know, tuition for arts and science undergraduates is highly regulated. So it's not really worth it to put up a new building for the sociology department. You're not going to get good financing for that because you can't put up the fees very much. But if you put up a new law school or a new school of architecture, then that's very financiable because uh, you can increase the fees. You can say, oh, you've got a fancy new building, so we're going to put up your fees to $30,000, which is what the University of Toronto did with their law school. Um, so what you have is new buildings that the university can't actually afford being used as sort of phantom assets. Um, uh, and more and more debt is created, which then leads universities into things like buying derivatives. Um, now, um, I'm just going to give you a quick example from my research on the University of Toronto, and this is going to sound like just muckraking at my own university, but you know, perhaps it is. But um, uh, you might have examples from your own institutions, and at the break or at lunch, I'll be very happy to uh, to take your uh, your uh, uh, information. Now. Um, so, apart from financialization uh, and, you know, playing the stock, well, it's not even the stock market, but buying derivatives is not something you do in the stock market. Um, so, apart from things that are sort of playing dangerous financial games, you also have other moves that I think are typical of what's going on in the broader public sector now and that cannot be easily fit under the banner of neoliberalism. The most expensive building built at the University of Toronto over the past six years was not an academic building. It was a huge aquatic center, swimming and diving facility. And it was not done on a kind of for-profit basis. It was done as a public-public partnership between the city and the university with the best of intentions. Where is this located? This is located on the Scarborough campus of the University of Toronto. Scarborough was, is one of the inner suburbs, used to be middle class, became racialized and poorer over the last 30 years because of the usual kind of urban you know, dynamics. The University of Toronto Scarborough campus has always been more progressive than the downtown campus and has felt more responsibility towards the underprivileged community in which they live and so on. So there were all these people with very good intentions who thought that the only way to get good recreation facilities, proper recreation facilities for Scarborough youth 
was to take advantage of, take the opportunity of the Pan Am Games. Pan Am Games are obviously not something in Europe, but the Pan American Games, and they're, they're only kind of, you know, about 10 or 15 rankings down from the Olympics, so they're not exactly a big deal. In fact, they're a really losing deal for the city that hosts them because there's no real commercial value to them. But be that as it may, the Pan Am Games were treated as if they were the Rio Olympics. And so both the city and the university were talked into participating in this partnership. And I went around interviewing various university officials, city officials. Well, why did you do this anyway? Thinking like you don't need to be an expert on mega sports events to know that tying the fate of local recreation to mega sports is not always a very good idea anyway. And it was interesting because the word that all of them used was opportunity. And this is very much, um, you know, sort of got me thinking about the logic of the deal. Um, my friend Fleur Johns, who's a, a corporate law, international law person uh, in Sydney, has written some fabulous stuff on the mystique of the deal, about how if you're in the business of deals, deals are good in and of themselves, and as soon as you finish, you go on to the next deal, and you've got to have more deals, and you don't even... You, you don't stick around to see how the previous deal turned out. You just go on to the next one. That's how international finance works. Um, so there is a kind of mystique of the deal, a logic of the deal. And what really has struck me is how public sector administrators have become totally suckered into the mystique of the deal. So that if you look at university websites, what do they do? They announce a new building. Hello, is the university <laughs> primarily a developer or what? But it's a deal. And the deal is not just buildings. I mean, it can be a new program to send 25 students on a trip to India while the other 5,000 students whose parents don't have the money for the ticket, you know, stay at home and have their uh, low-performance education. But the point is that everybody wants to be able to announce a deal and administrators' careers are made on the basis of deals. And you don't usually get much information to know whether the deal was good or bad, and in any case, usually you can only tell in retrospect, like as in the Chicago parking meter story, it's only in retrospect that people found out, gee, now we can't have you know disabled parking free, whatever. So there's this mystique of the deal that totally uh, you know, pervaded all of the actors here. Even though they were all progressive, the mayor of the city then was quite progressive. This is before the Rob Ford era. Uh, the university authorities were quite progressive and really keen to participate with, um, with community groups. So what did they do? Well, they created this partnership whereby the city and the university would co-own this hugely expensive building. Um, and the capital costs were mostly paid by government, as was the case with all the Pan Am Games venues, as probably was the case for the London Olympics, for all I know. But the operating costs are downloaded onto the partners who own the facility equally. And just to give you a sense of the operating costs, the velodrome that was built for the Games, it runs to about a million dollars a year in operating costs, which you might think is high. The 
more better than Olympic standard swimming and diving facilities at U of T Scarborough have operating costs somewhere around 14 to 18 million dollars a year. Uh, any, any of you who are administrators and know what your the operating cost of your building is, it's going to be like a fraction of that. Now, various stupid things were done, again, under the mystique of the deal. So, where is the facility located? It's located right on top of what was the biggest garbage dump in the whole city of Toronto, the Morningside dump. Now, why was it put on this landfill? Well, the city wanted to be able to remediate the soil I mean, the dump had been closed for years, but the city hadn't had the money to remediate the soil. So the city very cleverly seized the opportunity and persuaded the university, oh, this would be a good place for it. And then the university ended up paying two-thirds of the soil remediation costs that were ridiculously high. Uh, and when I asked somebody from the university, why did you agree to the soil remediation of $33 million when clearly the toxic... The toxicity was not the university's responsibility, it was the city, it was the city. I said, oh well, opportunity. We had to remediate that soil eventually, it is true, they owned a chunk of the soil, but you could argue it wasn't their responsibility. Anyway, and then students were completely misled and hoodwinked into um, uh, voting a fee, $280 a year, and what was cleverest about this is that the students who were voting were not the ones that paid because the fee only came into effect four years after the vote uh, when the facility would open and the students who had voted would all have graduated. And the bottom line now is that even though the students are paying most of the operating costs, um, we don't know exactly how much because they're not open about their books, but students get, well, it's not just students, all university users get 9% of the pool time. And the professional, nationally carded athletes get 42% of the pool. So, so much for the deal. And, you know, the reason I talk about it is precisely because it was not the neoliberal entrepreneurial types at the university who were promoting this. It was the progressive people who said, oh, we want to partner with the city, you know, Scarborough youth have no proper recreation and so on. This is what it looks like. And as I said, the facilities are better than Olympic standard. Um, not your average university gym. Um, so the final substantive point for I conclude. As I said at the beginning, the one thing that all of these new hybrid uh, practices of urban governance and urban development have in common is the scale, which I'm calling the art of the deal. It's not just the um, uh, spatial scale, it's, also, it, it's temporal scale as well, whereby doing a deal is what's important, not what you leave afterwards. Um, so, and it's also a scale of approval, right? I mean, all of these public sector entities, be the universities or transit authorities, they have boards that have to approve decisions. You know, the manager can't just spend $10 million. But the approval, too, happens at the scale of the single deal. It comes up as a line item, as an item on an agenda. So the single agenda item is the scale of the deal. And so you look at it and it'll say, 
Do you approve $40 million of university money? We also have $10 million of private money, and the government will put in 40. That would be a kind of typical building. Um, and so the people on the Board of Governors say, oh, yeah, that looks okay. Well, how do they know? They don't know because what you never get is a needs assessment. If you were in health sciences, you couldn't just say, does it look all right to spend $10 million vaccinating kids against this or that? You'd always want to say, well, as opposed to spending money, how, in what other way, or do we have studies that justify this? But it seems like when it comes to the art of the deal, each deal is self-contained and self-justified, so there's never a campus-wide spatial needs assessment that's done to say, gee, the geography department is particularly badly housed. We should do something. No, that's not how it works. The deals are externally led. So the way it happens is, Mr. So-and-so has given $5 million for this. Are we willing to then put in $20 million of university money and $20 million of government money? And so each deal is by itself. And you can't really blame even the students who are part of the Board of Governors because they only see one deal at a time. And how do they know this is good or bad? They can't know. You could only know if you had a needs assessment and you had priorities. But needs assessment is not a word that is compatible with the art of the deal. Anyway, and basically, I've, I'm not going to go through this slide. You can you know, see it yourself. But I've divided uh, universities into two types. One is the Oxbridge Gentlemen's Club style which my own university actually prides itself on. Um, so these are kind of high cultural capital institutions, usually older, and they often eschew the language of financialization and revenue streams. You, administrators at my university would die before they uttered the word students as revenue streams. They just would not ever say that because we're cultural capital people, and we always appoint professors as deans and vice presidents, and we don't have anything to do with financial markets. It's a disavowal of finance. And then on the other hand, B, you have more entrepreneurial, usually newer universities. Not surprisingly, these are also the ones that have set up arm's length, wholly owned subsidiaries to do real estate and development. At the University of Toronto, you have the vice president of the university, former chair of the chemistry department, who does all of these multi-million dollar deals as if he knew anything about what things are supposed to cost. The other more entrepreneurial, newer universities have, as I said, arm's length, wholly owned subsidiaries, um, uh, staffed with people from finance um, and banking, which leads to a terrible lack of transparency because these wholly owned subsidiaries are not considered public entities. I mean, you could push it because I think under uh, freedom of information law you could say those are actually public, but in practice they don't post their minutes online, their meetings are not public and so on. And these more entrepreneurial in institutions also talk about things like unlocking the value of the land, which at my own Oxbridge-type university would be seen as no. I mean, I asked a senior official once, and he said, we have a policy, we never sell land. So, um, all right, so, um, sort of two kinds of conclusions. One is somewhat unrelated to what 
became before, but in a way it's not. The deals that I've been talking about are all part of the world of infrastructure. Infrastructure seems to come in deals. That's the unit of infrastructure. Back in the day, before we had infrastructure, we had public works. Public works did not come in deals. They came in networks. Uh, you know, so you had to have a seeing like a state sort of gaze to do networks of public works, like the 1950s, you know, National Highway Scheme in the U.S. Um, but today, what we have everywhere is the art of the deal. So as I said, what I haven't figured out is the exact connection between the replacing of the word public works by the word infrastructure and the rise of the art of the deal, but I know they go together. Um, and just a final point here is that I think the art of the deal isn't just rooted in the business world. That's how most critical geographers would write about it. They'd say, oh, well, it's all the logic of finance infecting the public sector. But I think there's more to it than that. Architectural drawings are always a, one building at a time, and architecture plays its own role in the art of the deal. Um, architects only ever draw one building at a time. Um, or maybe a little public square or something, but it's always sort of one little place at a time. And there's also NGO and community agencies, which um, for many years now have worked at the scale of the project, especially the pilot project. So you have to do one project and prove that it works, and then you get more money for another project, and you go from one project to another. I mean, I have several friends who work in international development, None of them have permanent jobs. They all have contracts, and each contract is one project. And they move on to the next project, and 20 years later, they have no idea what happened to the one that they studied 20 years ago. So there's no real network. There's no real... So the art of the deal can be, uh, you know, sort of pure business, or it can be done by well-meaning people who want to cover the railway lands in Toronto with a little park. Uh, the politic of the art of the deal is indeterminate. It doesn't have to be a neoliberal right-wing politic. You can have well-meaning people who play the art of the deal. Uh, and I won't go into this, but this is... I went onto the website of the Borough of Camden just to get a local art of the deal, and it's a perfect example. Well, it's not perfect because they don't have a professional designer. They, they, their software is the pits, and they don't have good architectural drawings. But in an amateur manner, it's all the same. Isolation of a project. There's no needs assessment. There's nothing that says in the whole borough of Camden, this is the space that most needs funding and attention. It's just the project. The project justifies itself. The description justifies the project. Now. I don't need to tell law students that description and justification are two different things, but in the art of the deal, they become the same. And there's no financial details ever, but lots of architectural details. So it's sort of architecture and substituting itself for finance. Um, anyway, and so the last slide is just basically a summary of what I've said. Privatization, neoliberalism are a bit too fuzzy. 
Um, you have all these different things, monetization of public revenue streams, public sector entities playing financial markets, usually unsuccessfully. Um, and you can have like a, a form of privatization, which is higher university tuition fees, but I think the word privatization isn't necessarily accurate or appropriate for that. Uh, there's other things that are going on that I'm not happy calling them privatization. And then finally, there's the valorization of partnerships of all kinds for their own sake. Right? So people will say, we have to break down the silos. At a university administrators meetings, I once said, you know, silos were actually good. They kept the grain dry. <laughs> Could have heard a pin drop. What do you mean? Of course we have to break down silos. Um, the breaking down the silos thing is, again, valuing the deal for its own sake. Anyway, I'll end there because I've gone on too long. Well, thank you very much.